you know, a good death, yeah, there's no guarantees of a good death. I'll say that. That may not be what, what people want to hear. But it's, you know, in my mind, if I was going to say, if I'm going to have an answer to that for myself, it will be as conscious a death as possible. It'll be a death that looks after, in my dying, the ones around me. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place, and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination, and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. For nearly three years, I've opened every episode of this podcast with the question, what does it mean to live a good life? With today's guest, I could have opened with, what does it mean to die a good death? Today, my guest is Eve Joseph. Eve is an award-winning poet. She's an incredible storyteller. She's written a book about death and dying, which also happens to be her memoir called In the Slender Margin, The Intimate Strangeness of Dying. It's a beautiful book in which Eve shares lessons and insights spent from decades of working with and serving people near the end of their lives in hospice. In this interview, we explore our society's relationship to and understanding of, or maybe limited understanding of death. We also talk about, as I've said, what it means to have a good death. We talk about what Eve has learned about metaphor, about the creative process, about the importance of solitude in that. We also talk about what Eve has learned from having a stroke, what that was like. I feel really fortunate to have connected with Eve, to have learned from her in the many different cultures and perspectives that she writes about and talks about and what's common to our understanding of death. You can learn more about Eve and her work at evejoseph.com. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Eve Joseph. Eve, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Eve, will you tell me, please, what is life about? <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I was hoping you'd know. <laughs> yeah, no, not that one. I don't. I have absolutely no claim to wisdom, to any kind of wisdom. And you can hear, oh, that makes her wise. No, that's not true. <laughs> I'm at uh, 67. I'm... I'm learning all the time about how to live in the best way I can, how to be the most conscious, loving parent, partner. But it's, a, it's an ongoing learning. I have absolutely no idea what it's about. Okay. Thank you for that. So, Eve, you've written a book called In the Slender Margin, The Intimate Strangeness of Death and Dying. This book is a little different from your other books, which are books of poetry. This book in the Slender Margin is about your life. It's about your experiences, things you've learned related to death. And I want to start by 
asking you about an experience you write about in this book. I think you were in fifth grade. You talk about a teacher you had who read to you some poetry and the experience you had and the impact that 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 has had on your life. That is so clear to me. I was in grade five. And, you know, just a, a regular, you know, those, in those days, a rows of, you know, all the, the wooden desks were in a row, even at inkwells, I'm dating myself. And at the front of the class, Mrs. Black read, uh, read a poem. She read Blake, but she also said the word, you know, it's, it's crazy to remember, but she said the word ephemeral. And I remember it was like one of those collision moments. You hear that, um, that things slow down. You hear that uh, that time uh, you know moves really slowly in, in when there's when there's an accident or or trauma and and it wasn't trauma but I was time completely slowed for me you know hearing that word and it was it was just uh, I guess it was my first experience of falling really falling in love with language and the impact you know that that had in the book you write I remember thinking I could actually taste the words she was saying. That is really remarkable. And and you say, after what was an archetypal thunderbolt experience, I wrote into my early 20s and then stopped for 30 years. So here you are in fifth grade having this experience that sounds pretty remarkable, very formative. And yet, for some reason, you stopped writing for 30 years. What will you tell me? I know we're, we haven't given a lot of context for the listener yet you know, who you are, what you do, what your life journey has been. But I thought I thought it might be valuable to start with something that was a passion or a, a curiosity or an interest, and then to talk about what seems to be a pretty normal human thing to do, which is to, for one reason or another, to disconnect from that and then later reconnect with it in our lives. Will you kind of sketch that life journey out for me? Yeah, you know, that it's a very timely question. Brilliant. I'm actually working on an essay right now. So I am a, a poet. I've been writing for the last uh, 25 years, and as you say, I did. Uh, I took a. There was a long hiatus, you know, from that. You know, being that young girl falling in love with language, doing some writing, you know, in my 20s or up into my my teens, into my early 20s, but then leaving it. And I'm I'm writing an essay that 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 I'm trying to mine what happened, and there are no easy answers to that. I mean, on one level, so. You know, on one level, it's a story of a life, a story, and possibly a woman's life. In that, you know, I got, um, I got married. I married into, you would call it American Indian. I married into in, in Canadian Indian Indigenous culture. My partner was a carver and artist. There was this whole new world. There was this this whole new world that absorbed me. It was it was fascinating. We had uh, three children, and very, you know, early on. I went to uh, went back, went to school, went back to school, and, and studied social work. We can come back to some of these things because there's there's intersections all over the place. There's intersections in my life between a creative drive and and a drive to not do good but have an impact, a drive to be of service in whatever ways I could be, and those two drives within myself didn't necessarily meet. At least they didn't for, you know, until my, until I returned to writing in, in my um, mid forties. So you, you can interrupt me anytime too. Um, so what happened is, you know, I, I married and, and we had children. I went to school, I studied social work and I ended up, uh, that my field, uh, 
was uh, my, the chosen area of specialty and social work was with the dying. Many reasons now I see that why I came to that, I didn't at the time. I simply thought, you know, there was a hospice close to us and I went to work there and, and I ended up working there for uh, 21 years. What I wonder, brilliant, is a question I circle right now, <laughs> is can one be a poet and not write? Can one be a writer and know the world poetically, but not put a word to paper? And I, you know, when I, I don't have a, I don't have a clear answer to that. I have some thoughts about that. When, uh, when I worked with, you know, over those many, many years of working with the dying, it felt like every part of me was called to that work. It wasn't the fact that I had a degree in social work. That helped with certain things. But the fact that my brother died when I was 11, and, my, and I grew up in a house of grief, really. Uh, my mom's grief was just enormous. The fact of, you know, working on freighters, of traveling around the world, of, of you know, marrying in, uh, into another culture, all those things came to bear on being with a dying person. It was what it allowed me, what my life allowed me was to enter as much as possible, you know, their experience. I think, in retrospect, now you know that I write, now that I'm a writer, I think that the very same things come into play as a writer. Getting a degree isn't going to help you. you know, when I started in my 40s, I did. I went and got a, a, you know, a creative writing degree. That was really helpful for the craft of it. But as with working with the dying, it was who I was. It was how I'd lived. It was all of those things um, that it was, you know, every single thing you know being called forward to work in both those areas. So both with writing and, and with work with the dying. And so, you know, back to that question of can one be a poet or can one be a writer and not write? I think I, think I saw the work poetically. I think I saw the work without knowing that. So it doesn't, it's not precious. It's not a precious thing. But I think that I saw it. And then so finally when I came to write, and what, and what I mean by that is not a whole narrative, brilliant. It never is for me. It's imagery. It's, a, you know, one incident. You know how memory works. We don't remember, you know, a whole lot, but, but we remember moments. And so when I came to writing, I yeah. had uh, many, many moments that I could call on. What was it that brought you back to writing? Well, just very simple. On a very simple level... Uh, my mom turned 80. I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned in the book, the very, the first poem I wrote, I was 11. And it was, I gave it to my mom when my brother died. He was killed in a car accident. And it was the first poem I wrote. And what I'm just, what I was thinking about yesterday is that I knew nothing about poetry, <laughs> just writing my grade five poetry. But I saw that, and I didn't understand what solace meant, but I saw that that, that poem consoled her in a way that nothing else did. And also what I would say about having written that poem is that it was my first experience, one that I would forget for a long time, but it was my first experience where poetry could speak for me when I couldn't. It had language where as an 11-year-old, I had no language to speak that, but, but the poem could. And, and you know, that sounds possibly a little bit airy-fairy, but poetry knows more than I do. It always astonishes me. In that way. So back to, so I'm giving you long rambling uh, answers. 
back to what brought me back was writing a poem for my mother's 80th birthday. And it seemed to me I, I, hadn't, I hadn't been reading a lot of poetry, but that's what I turned to. And that poem, again, an atrociously bad poem, a very long poem, a 10-page poem of um, you know, the decades of her life. It lit a fire. It feels like, like these embers were there all the time, but they, they, it was more than, than smoke and ember. There was a little fire that got, that got started there. And I got, um, I just was ravenous for, to know everything I could know about poetry. You know, your question about can one be a poet and not write poems, it might not be in the same in the same ballpark, but I have, you know, our family has owned owned for many years a, a national basketball association team, the Utah Jazz. And and as I look at uh, players, like I'll look at Michael Jordan and I'll look at, you know, some of our Hall of Fame players, Carl Malone and, and John Stockton, and 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 I'll look at, you know, one of those three I just mentioned won a championship, two of them didn't. But I, but one of the things I ponder on is, you know, when did Michael Jordan see himself as a champion? Was he a champion before he was ever recognized as one? Are Carl and John champions, despite never having won the trophy? You know, so kind of a similar thing. It's an interesting, interesting view in some ways similar. But I'm interested to get your view now on two things. One is, what does it mean to be a poet? So that's the first, the first question. And the second one is, what's your latest thinking on, on can one be a poet and not write poems. What it means, what it means for me to be a poet, is very much just related to how I see the world, how I filter the world. Still, there there is not always language. Poetry, it, writing doesn't come easy to me. It's uh, it's <laughs> often a struggle uh, or engagement. Let me put it that way. I guess most importantly, brilliant. What poetry did for me, and it did it. And it still does it. Is it return? It how to say this? It's not that it returned me to an authentic life, but it. My whole sense of myself living an authentic life is related to poetry. It doesn't mean that I was inauthentic when I was, you know, raising my children or, you know, working. There was an authenticity there, but this feels deeper. It feels like it feels like who I poetry really feels like who I was meant to be in this world, that you find, if you're lucky, you, you get a chance to be who you are, who you were meant to be, and that's exactly what poetry has done for me. Second part of your question, yeah, I, I totally believe you can be a poet and not write. My, I have a dear friend uh, who's a, a counselor at hospice still, and she's one of the most uh, poetic thinking people I know. She brings this, this poetic gaze to the dying that's uh, phenomenal. She doesn't write. I keep telling her she's a poet. She needs to write. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's possible. I think this is probably true in, in every field. And, and I'm reminded, as you say that, that there is no correlation between confidence and competence. A lot of people <laughs> who are confident, they're a good ex, but you know, whatever. But maybe uh, the world would be better if they weren't so confident. <laughs> Let me turn the conversation now to to a discussion of death and some of the things that you've learned in this regard. I learned a lot from your book and I really enjoyed it. One of the things that, I know this might be a big question, but what is it as a society, maybe more specifically as a Western, you know, science-based, maybe American or United States type culture, 
What is it that we don't understand about death? What is it that we get wrong? What is it that we overlook? We deny it. We still deny it. We're, we're not a, a society, in North America in particular, I include this country, Canada, where I am, we're, we're, we're not a society that embraces you know, death. We're frightened of it still. You know, there's all there's all kinds of reasons. You know, when you think back, even just a hundred years ago, where you know communities may have been smaller, and you know families closer, uh, where people didn't go to hospitals to die. We've removed. I mean, you know, Kubler Ross. Many people have written about this. Your audience will know about this. You know, many of them. But we've removed death from view, and by having removed it from view, we no longer know what to do with it. We've lost ritual and ceremony. In, and that's connected again sociologically to many, many people turned more to religion for answers. Not as many in the same way do that. So if you don't have, if, if you're, if you don't believe in God, how do you make sense of this? So there's, there's many, you know, there's, there's societal things, you know, mainly I would say our denial of death. Um, and one would, one would hope that it had changed. It has somewhat, but, but, but not in the largest society, I don't think. Our denial stops us from, from acting and from finding ways to not, just not be frightened, but to, to, to go through that grief, to experience that grief, to share that grief, to have language. We don't, you know, again, coming back to writing, we don't have a language that helps us to understand. Those are some of the things I think. You know, something in your book, again, when I say I learned a lot from it, one of the things I learned, and it's, I think, right in line with what you're saying now, is that in the 1800s, we gave little girls death kits to help them understand and prepare for or deal with the reality of death. Will you talk about what what are death kits and why did we use those and why did we stop? Well, I think certainly it was connected to the, the role of women at that time, as caregivers, as the ones who would look over, you know, take care of the family. And, and death was, you know, well, you know, look at what we're in right now. We're in a pandemic. In 1918, with the Spanish flu, uh, I, I'll just make this a very, you know, direct example. Uh, my husband's um, grandmother died, and her mother died as well a week later. My husband's grandmother was uh, 30 years old. And my um, Patrick, my husband's uh, father, was three years old, and his eleven-year-old um, sister was the one who helped, and who helped raise him, and who helped you know care for the family you know after that. So, I think that we can't even imagine children these days taking on those kinds of roles. We can't. It's is definitely different. Brilliant. It was incorporated. You know, dying was incorporated. It was a, there was a practical approach to dying too. It was incorporated, and there you know into into living, and there were rituals in place that people knew what to do. You mentioned too, and this I think is no surprise, but it's one of these things that maybe as we live along, <laughs> as we go through life each day, and uh, we we don't necessarily see the long view. You know where we've come from or where we're going as a society or individuals. But you mentioned you point out that. Historically, people died at home rather than in institutions or care facilities, and that this is really only a fairly recent development. How do you think that this has changed? Has changed us? Are we better for it? Have we lost something? Like, what's your view of of that? 
Again, nothing is straightforward. You know, it would be, it's tempting to say, yes, we lost something, but we've gained things as well. You know, with, um, you know, th- there's wonderful hospices, there's, you know, so much more is known. Um, and I imagine in those days, you know, I imagine, you know, brilliant in the days that, that people were routinely dying at home, you know, that would have been enormously stressful as well. One of the reasons that you can't answer a question in isolation is when people died at home, there was a whole structure in place in that community, in that town, where, you know, someone's going to drop off food every day, someone's going to take care of the kids, somebody's going to help, you know, clear the land, you know, whatever it is. And we know, so when we, now when I think of people dying at home, which is, we, we have the option, it's good, we don't necessarily have the structures in place to support that other than professional structures. Yeah. I mean, certainly family, you know, there are families and families will come together, but communities, I'm not sure, will come together in the same way. So you'll have a professional nurse come, you'll have a counselor come. I, I was the counselor on the palliative response team. And in some ways, we took the place of what would have been perhaps in other years, you know, the priest arriving or, you know, somebody with authority. We had the authority as a nurse and a counselor. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Thank you for for that. In your book, you talk about something called a good death. You talk about the fact that medical anthropology has this as a as a term, and that studies in medical anthropology have shown that death is defined as good if there is awareness, acceptance, and preparation, and a peaceful, dignified dying. You say we tame death with our ideas about it. What's your view about a good death? I mean, is this clearly there's you know, painful deaths and long, slow deaths and, you know, this kind of thing. But but this is an idea I hadn't given a lot of thought about. And maybe it's because I'm only in my 40s and I think I'm still in pretty good health. But um, if you were if you were to, to describe what does it mean to die a good death, how do you describe that? You know, it's so subjective. First, you know, what I would, what I would say it isn't is I think that we do ourselves an incredible disservice when we think that there is even such a thing as a good death to strive to look towards. Because, you know, I, I remember one family member who was so worried that her loved one had not reached acceptance, that he was dying and he wasn't accepting it, he didn't want to die. And she was so worried that that meant it wasn't a good death. It was his death. For him to have accepted his dying before, before he was ready, or ever, was not going to be in line with who he was. You know, Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, she really broke um, through many of the, uh, the barriers around, you know, around um, death and dying. And people, when people look at her stages, the last one being acceptance, they see it, you know, they see it as a linear, as a destination. And she never meant acceptance to be a destination. We go in and out of, you know, of, of those stages all the time. You know, a good death, you know, there's no guarantees of a good death, I'll say that. That may not be what, what people want to hear. But it's, you know, in my mind, if I was going to say, if I'm going to have an answer to that for myself, it will be as conscious a death as possible. It'll be a death that looks after, in my dying, the ones around me. You know, I think it sounds like it may be a false truism, but it, it seems that people, many people die in the way that they've lived. I, you know, I saw that. 
I would hope in my dying to not, you know, to be able to to help still. I've been a helper all my life. And so I would I would imagine in my dying, I would hope to be able to do that as well. I think that's a really beautiful view about, you know, a good death being one in which the people around you are, you know, acknowledged and, and cared for. I often think about my brother. He was he died three days short of his 45th birthday and it was unexpected. And when we went into his home and into his office, you know, obviously he didn't know he wouldn't be coming back and, and neither did we. But I just reflect on, you know, the drawers and the papers on the desk and just how ordinary it all was. But to look at it in that view of someone who would never be returning to it, never organizing it or sorting it or anything like that, it was caused me to think a lot about how I live and what I keep and <laughs> what I don't. That's pretty remarkable. You you write about in this book, you write about how you discovered some rituals being the same. You talk about we've lost ritual and ceremony as a society to a large degree around death, perhaps in particular. But you mentioned that in this, I think it's pronounced the Salish, is it the Salish culture? or the Jewish culture, that some of the rituals that they have around death are actually pretty similar. And, and I would suspect other cultures as well. Will you talk about what do these cultures that were that developed in very different parts of the world at different times, perhaps, what do they have in common? Well, when I look at the two, you know, mainly, you know, indigenous culture, uh, my, my ancestry is Jewish. I think, you know, in the, in the book, I'll just tell the story. You can do with it what you want. But in the book, you know, I talk about uh, we, uh, a very wonderful uh, poet here. Uh, she died uh, some years ago, P.K. Page. And she used to tell a story about influence. And her story was there was a, a bird was raised in uh, captivity away from its uh, species. It never heard its song. And then when the ornithologist slowly introduced it to birdsong. It was not of its own species, so it was other birds, but it, it picked the notes that formed its own species song from those other from the notes of the other of the other birds. And I think with you know when I was working at hospice, I was amazed that the rituals in indigenous culture that I was, you know, in, in the in my family and community I was living in, the rituals that resonated with me whether it was sitting with the dying person, you know, not leaving them alone you know, the nights before they died, whether it was lighting a candle, whether it was covering the mirrors. What I found out, because I didn't grow up, uh, my father left, I didn't grow up with Judaism. But what I found out is that all the, um, many of the rituals I was picking from indigenous culture were actually the ritual, uh, rituals um, from my Jewish heritage. You know, there's there's things that we just we will just never understand. I mean, it is, I write repeatedly, we are at the heart of mystery when you are, are with the dying. So what I would say about, about what I know about what's similar in those cultures is there are still cultures, you know, certainly when I look at um, my, uh, my indigenous family, my kids are all indigenous, where we have a, you know, their community of aunties and uncles and cousins, there is still a very close community, very, very uh, connected Ritual hasn't been forgotten. Community, it's like we talked about, you know, in the, in the late 18, you know, 1800s where, where there were neighborhoods and communities and people knew what to do. And, and in the communities that have kept ritual, that seems to be there's still that um, closeness. Yeah. Why did you call this book In the Slender Margin? I have to look at where that 
It is because it's the, it's the slender margin between Chikamatsu Monsimon, Japanese um, thinker, writer, had said that art exists in the slender margin between the real and the unreal. And I think that's exactly the same place that, uh, that death and dying exists. Right smack dab between the real and the unreal. Yeah. And so in that yeah. slender margin, that's, that's where I think um, we can pay attention. That, that's beautiful. You know, as I hear you describe our relationship with death, you know, in this conversation a bit and, and in the book, and how we've in some ways, I think, lost or we become disassociated. We don't have the relationship that maybe we once did. I wonder if that's the same phenomenon at work with our food, with our garbage, with our climate and our environment, you know, that many things have been outsourced, many things have been distanced, and we don't see the bigger picture. We don't see our role in it or our connection to it. Do you think, do you think that's the case? I do. And I think it has profound implications. Brilliant. When, uh, you know, a number of years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I'd never been a gardener. And I thought, oh, there's actually one of the nurses I was working with had a book on square, something called square foot gardening, where, because gardening can be overwhelming, right? But if you develop these little plots of one of a square foot, and you put peas in one, and then a square foot beside it, you put potatoes in that one, right? You do that. So I started square foot gardening. And very, very soon, um, we started composting and we started, our, you know, our garbage went way, way down. And we started looking at, at what we were buying in the grocery stores. It, it fundamentally changed our lives. What a fun idea, this square foot gardening. It's a really, it's fun. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> now, literally, you've got these square, and you can plant in your, so, you, you know, you've got your little plot of land here and you, you can do it anywhere. And you can plant flowers in it in one of your square feet. You can plant, you know, anything. So it's 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 really cool. It's really neat. And then then uh, I became a gardener. <laughs> Out uh, of that. that is really great. Yeah. So yes, and that you know your question is if we if we separate ourselves from things, how can we care about them? You know, how can we yeah. be aware? How can we taste them? How can we know? Yeah. Well, in in that. Then kind of brings me back to this idea of living, living as a poet or living poetically or something. I love the way you describe this in the book when you say, poetry is how I see the world and how I know I'm fully alive. You also say, it feels as essential as breath. It calls me to be present and shows me things as if for the first time. And that is so wonderful that, you know, I, I've practiced a formal meditation practice for about the last decade. And I've begun teaching mindfulness in the last few years uh, to others, but I'd never thought about poetry as a doorway to, you know, helping, I mean, first of all, for myself, but also helping others who might not be open to mindfulness per se, but as to be present and see things newly, that is really wonderful. If you were to instruct, and I suspect you do from time to time, young writers or maybe even older writers. <laughs> what instruction do you give people? What invitation or challenge do you do you give people who want to to write and live poetically? Just if I, I mean this sounds so so cliche, but to follow what you love. I didn't come into I didn't find poetry or poetry didn't find me, however that works, because I felt 
because I was rationally trying to think about something, it just pulled the carpet <laughs> out from under my feet. <laughs> you know, I loved it. I didn't know anything about it when I, you know, or much about it when I started, you know, reading um, voraciously about the poets I could I could find. And, you know, just so follow what you love, but also educate yourself. Read, read everything you can, you know, read what you what you love, um, find new writers, find new poets, find, find the people who speak to you. You know, there are, I mean, you, I've been, uh, you know, the last book I wrote was prose poetry. And I have been absolutely um, captivated by, by prose poetry. And so, you know, now if I go into a bookstore, you know, I'll flip through a, you know, I'll flip through a book. And if it's in traditional line, unless it's someone you know, I'm looking for in particular, I, I may not be interested, but once I see that block, that little window block of prose poetry, I'm I'm going to read it. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so so trust that it's not just what you love, but what you love will find you as well. Um, that's certainly, again, not wanting to sound you know new age and 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 out there. That's been my concrete experience of writing. What I've loved has found me. Thank you for that. Let me ask you a bit about metaphor. You know, I'm I'm so fascinated by metaphor because as a coach, well, let me back up. I had a teacher once say to me, when people speak, their brain comes out of their mouth. <laughs> you know, what people really believe, how they feel is often expressed in their speaking. And And what I'm amazed at as a coach is how often people are unaware of what they think, what they feel, but if you can help reflect back language to them, and especially metaphor, because in some ways it's easier to see if someone uses a term like ball and chain when referring to their spouse, you probably have a pretty good idea how that relationship feels for them and so forth. That so much of our metaphor as we live is unconscious and often disempowering, but when used consciously as a, like a poet, or maybe unconsciously when we're in a flow or the muse is speaking or whatever, who knows where it comes from. But anyway, that's all a long setup to ask you about metaphor. What's your, what's your understanding of, or what's your relationship with, with metaphor? Oh, you know, for me, metaphor gets right to the heart of something. So it bypasses explanation it bypasses um, simile, where you, you say something is like something or as, you know, compared to like or as. The, sun is, the grill is as hot, the hot plate is as hot as the, it's a terrible one, simile, as the sun. But metaphor, I remember your uh, friend, a poet, writing a line once just saying that um, he had a pond and he said that uh, the goldfish were the water's thoughts. And to me, you know, that's metaphor. and. So it just gets, it just cuts away everything to the truth of a situation, to the truth of, of something. Yeah, it bypasses, it feels like it bypasses the editor, it bypasses the intellect to, to go right to, to the heart of what something is. Yeah, and I was so struck by a, a sentence you wrote where you say that metaphor, the engine of poetry, which first of all, I love that. So metaphor, the engine of poetry is also the language of the dying. What do you mean by that? It amazed me. It was one of the, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, brilliant in our, in our talk, how um, working with the dying and writing poetry are twinned. That, and my, my experience of that over the years was, 
you know, I didn't know before I started working with the dying, I didn't know that, um, that, that, that metaphor was the language that people came to. So you'll get many, 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 many examples all the time of people just saying things like, you know, I, I want to go home now. And even if they're at home, you know that it's a larger home they're talking about. Or, you know, the woman who says, you know, my suitcase is, is packed at the door and I'm ready to go. Or, you know, the man, I think I, I said in the book, um, you know, the, I remember going to a, to a gentleman's house. He was dying, quite imminently dying. And he said, he pointed outside and he said, you know, there's a yellow cab that's just pulled up out here. And he said, it's, uh, it's got the wrong address, but I'm going to go anyway. And, you know, another woman who said to me, you know, they're jackhammering my street. Where am I going to live? And I was, I mean, these are all, they're astonished, astonishing metaphors for dying. And I've wondered, I wondered, well, as a number of things, I wondered what, the, what metaphoric language serves as someone approaches death. And I think, that, I think that we're not quite in our rational minds in the same way anymore. I don't think that it's uh, drug-induced. Um, some physicians will say that, oh, people are on you know, high uh, level, high doses of morphine, or this isn't related to that. It's, it's a way of it's a way of being able to speak about death, but without saying, you know, looking at your loved one and saying, I'm dying. It's different, to, but it, you know, it isn't a conscious decision either. Don't, don't, don't get me right. It's not a way of avoiding. It's just the music of the language that comes as someone is approaching death. Yeah, that's so, so fascinating. And it's totally fascinating. And so one could say, one could make a leap and say that, you know, being a, you know that poet, that uh, metaphor being the engine of poetry is also you know people it's it's the language that people come to when they die is poetry. Do you mind if I ask you questions about about your stroke? I know you've written an article about it where you shared your experience. What have you learned? I mean, obviously you've you've lived closely and, and served you know people at the end of their lives and. Uh, and a stroke is, is a very serious thing. Uh, I think you you mentioned, I didn't know this either, that after, I think you say after heart disease, it's the second leading cause of death in the world. And uh, fortunately, you've survived. What was your experience with stroke like and, and what's your life been like since? Right. So a little bit of background. I had a stroke, let me think, going on seven and a half years ago. I'd had some arrhythmias and right out of the blue, I was uh, 60, 60 years old. And very healthy, and so, so uh, I had a stroke, and oh, it's so amazing. You look back for anyone who's experienced, you know, a, you know, kind of any medical emergencies. You look back on it, and you can't quite believe your memories. You know that that that, that was you. I couldn't walk upstairs. I, I I was just exhausted. I cried all the time. It, it was the stroke was. Um, in the thalamus, which is very clo- close to emotional control. And so I would just uh, weep all the time. I cried all the time. For, this is for a couple of years. I did write an essay about this eventually. I think what, what stayed with me is, and what will have stayed with people who've experienced you know, any, anything um, life-threatening, is just a very different sense of uh, vulnerability and mortality. Not uh, not taking, I don't, you know, just don't take this for granted. I feel more fragile, and you know that may come with age anyway. 
but you know the the veneer that veneer between worlds is just a wee bit thinner for me i think and and with that also comes an enormous gratitude you know to have this time raymond carver is uh, an american poet a late late american poet and and short story writer one of his wonderful poems is called gravy and he was um alcoholic lived a really you know hard drinking hard smoking life met uh, Tess Gallagher, another um, one of your wonderful American poets. And they had, he quit drinking and he eventually got lung cancer, but he had 10 years with Tess Gallagher that he never expected to have. He expected that he would, he would die. And he had these 10 years with this love of his life. And the poem, he wrote about it, the poem's called Gravy. <laughs> it's like, you never, it's a wonderful <laughs> poem, you should look it up. It's called gravy, and it's like the gratitude for that we feel for what we don't ever imagine that we would have. And so, yeah, I have to say that I feel like it's a bit of gravy here. <laughs> I know this is not uncommon for people who have some kind of a near-death experience to, you know, and survive to return to life with a greater appreciation. You know, you said vulnerability maybe a sense of aliveness or purpose. Do you think that we can cultivate those things to the same degree without having to go through something so traumatic or serious? And, and if so, how? Well, I guess just the practice that you talk about, you know, the practice that you've been engaged in for years with mindfulness, you know, with meditation. I will, you know, for myself, I'm not sure that anything would have had that, would have brought me to that knowledge in the same way as, as a life-threatening experience. I'm just not sure. I don't know, but that is, is black and white, you know? So there, there's something of the urgency of that and of something, like you say, you know, seeing your, your brother's papers, seeing what, what someone just left. When you experience yeah. something like that, you're, you're very close to that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I'm sure yeah. you, you'll have many people who tell you, yes, you can, you can practice. Uh, you know, I just am not sure. Oh, thank you for that view. Well, if you're okay with it, let's go ahead and transition our conversation now to the enlightening lightning round. Sure. All right. So again, this is a, this is a series of about 10 questions on a variety of topics. Uh, my aim, for the most part, is to ask the question and stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you like. All right. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... It wouldn't be a box of chocolates. Brilliant. It would be a, <laughs> it would be a storm-tossed, brilliant, <laughs> wild ride. Yeah. This is the first time, too, by the way, in asking that to more than 100 guests that I'm thinking, maybe I should make that, I should make that question not be a simile. And be a metaphor. Life is a <laughs> blank, not life is like a blank. But would it change your answer at all if it was life is a? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, uh, I like it. All right, question number two. Here I'm borrowing the technologist and uh, capitalist Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Bah. <laughs> <laughs> This is like the Proust questionnaire. It is. It is actually. And, and I didn't know of what that was until after I'd created this, but very much. It's shorter though. Okay. The question is, 
What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Well, I'm not sure how many would agree or disagree, but you know, a truth for me is um, so hard to articulate. You know, I think of I think yeah. of things like people practicing uh, tough love, and you know, having for whatever reasons they practice that, and I. I just am the opposite in the sense of, you know, I just think you live as generously as you possibly can. I'm not sure that, that people would disagree, so that trips me up a little bit. But that that you're not too careful. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that one well for you. <laughs> no, that's great. You're doing great. That's, that's, there are, there's no wrong answer. So perfect. Okay, uh, we'll go to question number three. I recognize this might be a bit of a stretch of the imagination, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? <laughs> My first impulse is not not good. <laughs> Believe me alone. Because <laughs> um, I don't like slogans. And I don't, you know, it certainly wouldn't be anything that in, invited... Uh, sentimental responses. <laughs> um, okay. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't put leave me alone, but but it would be some, you know, it would be something that didn't uh <laughs> probably to the opposite of what someone who wanted to wear a t-shirt would do. <laughs> you have a very difficult person yeah. here with you today. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? There's a number of them, um, but Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning would be one of them. Frankl being a Holocaust survivor who um, wrote this book following uh, his years in a concentration camp and then uh, developed a therapy uh, out of it, logotherapy, where he talks about the most important thing in this life is how we make meaning. I think that we often give books, not just books that we love, but the books we, we give to people, often maybe a, a people who are maybe uh, struggling. You know, and yeah. So that's one of them. And, and another one would be um, Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, like for the same reasons that often a book comes to mind when, when you want to be able to reach and, and be able to offer something to someone. Yeah, thank you. That book, by the way, Man's Search for Meaning, is the most common response to this question really? on, my, on my show in about a... Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so interesting. So I haven't quantified it, but my guess is it's at least 15 of the 100 people I've asked have said that. Wow. So, that's powerful. really interesting to me. That's great. Yeah. Question number five. You've been based where you are a long time, but I imagine that your work has taken you around uh, at least the continent. So with a lot of travel, this question is about travel. <laughs> this is all a long way of saying What's something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? When I travel, I have a books. You know, I remember when, um, when I was a young woman, I worked on freighters. I, I worked on Norwegian ships. And we traveled all over the world. Cargo ships, not, not, um, not passenger ships. This was in the early 70s. I don't, I'm even not sure it's possible anymore. <clears throat> but I remember... When we were going from, must have been, we were picking up pulp and paper and lumber from Canada and, and you know, coming down your way along the California coast and and off to, you know, Japan and Korea and, and you know, all over. And I remember that, I think it was on a, a 
first long stretch to Japan, seeing an albatross, just just albatross just came and, and wove behind us and for days and days and days. And I had my uh, ancient mariner with me. <laughs> I'd sit wow. on the back. How perfect. Oh, yeah, I'd sit on the back. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, a book is uh, ordinary, ordinary answer, but that's, that's um, really, really critical for me. Thanks. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, again, back to your question about, you know, is it important to be connected to how we live and what we do? That square foot gardening that I mentioned, you know, it went from from the little square foot to a bigger, you know, our whole, we tore up our whole backyard and, you know, put in flowers and plants and uh, food. And in the last, uh, I guess, two, three, three years now, we're we're essentially vegan. We we vegan, but we eat fish. So we're you know slash. We've really made changes in our diet. It wasn't a bad diet, but we no longer eat animal product. And I think that uh, that's been a really really good thing um, in my life, in our life. Right on, and good for the planet too. Yeah, and good for the planet. Yeah. Question number seven. I ask this, knowing you're Canadian. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Yeah, okay, I'll answer that. And I I apologize if it's presumptuous, but what I would wish that all people knew was that if we look after the other, we're looking after ourselves. So where that where that comes from is my my uh, husband was uh, teaching in um, or giving actually a workshop years ago in uh, Bellingham. Went down. Um, there was a, a college there, and he was he was uh, teaching and. And after he was, there were whoever had asked him, you know, uh, colleague was driving him back to the ferry, and and he said, so let me understand socialize, let me understand your medical system in Canada. I would pay for somebody who's ill, but I wouldn't, you know, why would I do that? And we're the one good thing in this country is that we don't even question that. We pay our monthly amounts. Into a you know into what I think you guys see as socialized medicine, so that anyone who gets sick will be looked after. I didn't pay a cent when I had my stroke, um, or rehab, or any of that. And so I would I would just want people to understand when you wear a mask, you're looking after somebody around you. You're looking after you know somebody who may not go back to their grandmother with COVID. You know, so that's what I would hope that yeah. people understand yeah. that what we do, we look at that we do it to look after each other. Yeah, I'm just pausing because I'm reflecting on my wife and I had this conversation not long ago about perhaps the reason so many Americans are resistant to that is we know that there are these. This is a very judgmental statement, but these very dumb lifestyle decisions. Like, should I pay for the fact someone overeats fast food or that they <laughs> or that they smoke? You know. So anyway, but. I love your view on, you know, taking care of the other is taking care of ourselves. It fundamentally is. And you know what? It fundamentally works here. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, uh, coming down the stretch, almost done with the enlightening lightning round. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Those were very different size. (laughs) (laughs) You saw my whole life pass in front of me there. <laughs> oh yeah, and so the size—what those size were—is first was uh, 
listen. Listen way more than you talk. Not that long ago, a couple of years ago, somebody I loved very much and I had uh, a falling out. And I was bereft and didn't know what to do. And I, I, you know, I, I went to a counselor and came to understand that the, I, I, sorry, brilliant, it's not, I'm not being really clear right now, but I came to understand that by just respecting that person's difference and not having to fix anything or do anything and just essentially get out of the way made an enormous difference. Um, yeah, it would be just succinctly, it would be really listening, um, listening to people even when what you're hearing is triggering for you, challenging for you, but try and understand. I mean, it's as cliche to saying trying to, to you know, walk a mile in their shoes. Try to understand. Thank you. Question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? You just give it away. And this is absolutely ridiculous. I am sounding so you know, woo-woo to me. You give it away and it comes back. Like this is just insane. Well, yeah, so an answer to you know about money. My mum I grew up in a house, you know, this my mum came from England in nineteen forty-five and she had this, you know, little house and that was built and I grew up in that house. Left in the, you know, seventies. She had this, you know, she had this house her whole life. She died in that house. And when she died in two thousand and four the house was worth um, uh, $500,000. And she had, for, thir- for 30 years, she'd had uh, two uh, Indigenous women with Down syndrome live with her. She looked after them. And so when she was dying, I have a sister. She said, oh, I'm so happy. She said, on the one hand, I've looked after my daughters. You know, you'll, you'll sell this house and you'll be looked after. And on the other hand, and she didn't see any any uh, any conflict here. She said, on the other hand, Leslie and Colleen, these two young, two now middle aged Downs women, can live here till the till the end of their lives. So I was like, okay, this is. Uh, she doesn't realize that this is mutually exclusive. Um, <laughs> so what we did is, you know, my sister talked to a financial person. He came over and talked to me, and he said, if you're, you know. What we could arrange is if your sister has full title to your, to the house, she can she can mortgage it and give you some money every month for you know sixteen years, and that allowed her to stay in the house and to look after the ladies, and it allowed me to have a you know this bit of money. The lawyer we saw to draw this up said this is a terrible terrible idea. You meaning me, you get no interest. You can't pay off your house. You've got a mortgage. Yada yada yada. And we were like, are you kidding? <laughs> this is a this is a totally fantastic idea, <laughs> right? So, Carol, my sister, stayed in the house with with uh, women, and up and and then in uh, when are we now? In twenty eighteen, the ladies moved in with a caregiver. My sister could no longer look after them, but they moved in with a caregiver who'd been part of our lives for twenty years in her own home, and we sold the house for two point three million dollars. <laughs> Holy cow! And then gave our five children a hundred thousand each. It was like just like wow. boom, you know. So I mean, yeah, it's a money story, but it was the joy of that, you know, and the crazy kind of reward. Like I look up at the sky. I don't know. I don't know. You know where my mother is, but it's like, oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So yeah, money. You give it away. You give it away. 
Yeah, that's the law of reciprocity right there. And it's wild, you know? Seems yeah. it seems to work. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Okay, and the final question here is um, if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, assuming you're okay that they do, what would you have them do? Uh, anybody can write to my website and I will, I'll always write back to people. I don't give out my personal email, but I will uh, contact through my website. And the website is, is it evejoseph.com, evejoseph.wordpress.com? www.evejoseph.com. Okay. All right. And then the last thing here is just, um, I'll say this now to make sure that I don't try to squeeze it in at the end or forget it. As a um, as a token of my gratitude to you for making time to share your experience and and your wisdom, you are wise, Eve. I have gone online to the micro-lending site, kiva.org, and I've made a micro-loan to a woman entrepreneur in Kenya named Alice, who's a 35-year-old mother. She's a smallholder farmer who started farming a few years ago out of necessity, economic necessity. So she's going to use this money to buy fertilizer and seeds uh, in order to improve the quality of life for herself, her family, and people in her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to go make that loan. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Then the last part of our interview here is um, I've read a few things online about you about your writing practices that I'm excited to ask you about. Maybe I'll start with this one about solitude. Will you talk to me about the the role of solitude in your writing? It's so interesting to me how absolutely essential uh, solitude is. My my husband is a, a poet, playwright, and he can write anywhere. And I, I need to be alone, and I need to be away, generally away from home. So what I've, you know, uh, a month ago, a friend of ours, uh, who a writer, has a, a cottage on the water that he just lets writers use, and I went there for two weeks. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll rent a hotel room in a city in Vancouver. I like the city. It's not, it's not, I'm not drawn to, to go to you know, the pastoral. I'm drawn to go to the heart of something. What I find happen, what I, why, I think it, why I think it's essential um, for me, brilliant, is that over a couple of days, the, you know, I, the external world starts to retreat and the internal world of you know, thought, of image, of whatever those, um, those sparks are, starts to come more I and you know you know my, my t-shirt which is not that, not a very good answer I was like leave me alone <laughs> maybe that's your writing your writing shirt yeah, that's my right that's my writing shirt <laughs> um it's I no longer talk to people I mean I'll go get a coffee in the morning or I'll but I don't talk to anybody and and then something starts to come that isn't as interrupted as normal. So it's, it's really essential for me. Was there a moment when you recognized that you were a writer or a poet? Like a single moment that your, your sense of yourself or, or you, your identity changed? And I still, I won't introduce myself as a writer or a poet. We're, in, we're having this conversation and it's a directed conversation. So I do that. But it still feels like too big a claim to me. So I'm, I'm definitely in process, you know, and that's not a false humility. It's just the truth. Yeah. I know for my part for many years, I wasn't sure what a writer did. <laughs> it was like, what, how will I know when I've checked enough boxes to like fairly call myself this thing? 
you know? So, you know, the moment for me, my grandma, I was probably eight years old and uh, my grandma encouraged me to keep a journal. And, and I did from that time forward, I, I did become something of a journaler. And when I got into college, I did decide to be an English major. I was also an Asian studies major. I've always loved language, but I didn't, again, I didn't know what it meant to be a writer and having a family business. I didn't think it made sense to pursue that. I thought I'll stay close to home. I'll participate in what my parents have started and so forth. And then one day after I'd graduated from college and started working in the family business and didn't find the fulfillment, I think I thought I would, or I'd hoped to. And I was wondering what I should do with my life. I looked at my stack of journals, which by then, if I put them on top of each other, probably reached higher than my waist. I mean, it was a lot of pages. And I thought, if nothing else, if the simple definition of a writer is one who writes, I am undeniably a writer. But beyond that, I don't know what the hell it means <laughs> or what I should do. Yeah. So that was a moment for you me. You know what sure. I love about that? It takes the preciousness of it away. A writer writes. Yeah. And there's no yeah. judgment on good, bad, literary, whatever. A writer writes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like right. that. Yeah. What have you found works for you or has worked for you when it comes to routine or maybe even ritual as it relates to writing? I have tried everything that everybody's probably ever tried. Um, you know, getting up at a certain time, writing daily, and and nothing works consistently for me. What works consistently for me is to leave and to be alone. What, you know, I think it was, is it, oh, who is it? Carolyn Forche. Someone says, you know, AOC, ass on chair, show up. You have to show up. <laughs> yeah. And that's the truth. You have to show up. You have to, you know, you have to write reams and reams and reams of uh, bad, bad stuff before something breaks through. But I think it's a couple of things. I think what the ritual or the practice is, is one thing. But I think the intent of that is something else. And for me, the intent is to reach some kind of um, what Rambo would call derangement. So an undoing of the senses, to get out of rational mind, to get out of linear mind. And, and it, it's, you know, I find that enormously difficult to do. Often, you know, writers use alcohol. That's, uh, you know, a, a common you know, story about writers, but I understand, you know, why, uh, why someone would do that. The one time I experienced, one of the times I experienced that was when I went to Banff. It's a Banff school of writing, you know, maybe 10 years into my writing. And I went there to work on a manuscript and something about being in the Rocky mountains, being again, alone in my own room, although in a community of artists, I started, you know, brilliant. I started to lose my sense of time. So I would wake up at three or four in the morning and I'd just get up and write. And then I'd go back to sleep and I'd wake up at noon. And I lost, you know, our regular routine. I lost the clock. And it was the closest I've come to derangement and to understanding how deeply connected that is to creativity. So I don't think it's the ritual itself. I think it's, it's what you're calling on it. It's duende. It's the, you know, the presence of death. It's the, it's the nonlinear that you're trying to access. You know. I love that. That brings up so much for me too. I think about what William Burroughs said about exterminate all rational thought. 
you know, this, and then for someone who lived <laughs> for Burroughs as a gonzo journalist and experimenting with all kinds of substances, maybe there as well. But also what a teacher of mine, Warner Earhart, says about the essence of communication is intention. You know, like you're saying, it's not the ritual of the thing, but the intention behind it. And uh, Exactly. That's but really, the ritual may help that. us get there. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. I know that with creativity, with virtually any creative process, the tools we use and the way those tools feel, a pen, a paper, a computer, a software, you know, these different things, they matter to both our experience and, and in some way the experience of the person who experiences our work. Having said that, what tools or what technology helps you or has helped you to achieve creative expression? If I'm understanding your question, you know, I think of, you know, when I first started writing, you know, it was, you know, by hand, not even a typewriter, you know, Patrick, you know, that, that, that it was a typewriter. And it, it wasn't, you know, it was, you know, I write now, and let me know if I'm not understanding your question. I, I write on, on a computer. I, I just one thing I think of, you know, I, I think of writers I've heard who say that, you know, they write by hand still, because it feels like that motion goes right through their brain into their arms into their into their fingers. That That's not my experience. But in that computer and in those documents, I have all kinds of little weird idiosyncrasies that, you know, about. So for example, it's like your journals waist high. I will, uh, this is definitely one of the things for me. I have a uh, a file called Entries and Observations. And I let myself go there. It's, I think, 800 pages long. I let myself go there and, and not have the editor. Slender Margin started in there. It was like, I could just write anything. And I would not allow the editor into those pages. And then when something starts to take shape, then I'll remove that out of Entries and Observations, and I'll start a file and I'll work on it. But it has to start in the compost file. Yeah, I, I, I was for me. I love that. It's for it's like a creative stew. It is. Yes, yeah, anything goes there. Our anything. primordial. Yeah, that's cool. Well, let me ask this about your reader. How connected do you feel in the moment that you're drafting to the person who will be reading your work? And and along those lines, do you write with a reader in mind? Do you write for yourself? Something else? How does that work for you? I think it works differently in prose and poetry. So, for example, when I was writing Slender Margin, I felt I didn't have an ideal reader, but I felt connected to whomever might read this book on death. I felt as if I was speaking to someone with poetry and certainly with prose poetry because it's still controversial. <laughs> and I'm drawn more and more in prose poetry, uh, brilliant, to the surreal. And so I'm like, I'm actually writing myself up. I'm writing myself out of a readership. <laughs> and I can't help it. Uh, so that is for myself, you know. You know, amazingly, as you you know, it did it did win a prize, which is a, an incredible blessing and a wonder to me, because it does feel like it's um, the convolutions of this, you know, this. Yeah, congratulations on that as well. So, what's the lesson that you can <laughs> that you can? <laughs> you know, I guess that it, the you know the truth is that you 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 don't write for others; you write for yourself. You know, and you find that. I'm reminded of what I once heard attributed to to the novelist uh, Kurt Vonnegut when he said, "Write for just one person." 
But I love that that's so open-ended. Is that one person ourselves? Is that a reader? Is it a specific reader? Is it some kind of composite, you know, avatar reader or something? So, well, knowing that the intended audience for, for this conversation includes those who want to do what you have done, what you are doing, which is doing what you love and sharing your gifts with others in ways that they enjoy and that matter. Somebody who's maybe at the beginning of their creative journey, maybe they don't trust, they don't yet believe that either they have what it takes or that they're good enough or whatever inner critic might be saying, or somebody who's on the path, maybe they've had some measure of success, whether commercially or just feedback from from peers and family. But what do you say to people who feel called this direction to write and to share their writing? What advice or encouragement or, or other words do you offer them? So what really helped, I think what was really important for me was, be, was to start with a passion, to start with this, you know, to be gripped again by language. But then, you know, I... I immersed myself in in reading, um, in finding as many you know past poets, present poets, finding work that I loved, immersing myself in language. So educating myself. I started an education uh, for myself. Brilliant. Um, I had to. I went to school. I did uh, you know a couple of years of creative writing. Again, as I said, you know that they're helpful things to do. If you're starting out, I would say to people. If you're writing poetry, you know, prose, whatever, uh, send send that work out, and you will get a zillion rejection slips. I think it was Rethke, Theodore Rethke, one of again an astonishing, astonishing American poet, who talked about he he papered his walls with um, rejection slips. But there's there is something I think really important. We talk about yeah, you write for yourself, but your you your work also has to be out there. It helps, you know, for your work to go out, to be heard. It helps. The feedback is wonderful. You know, when you see your, your first piece of writing and, uh, you know, published, it's enormously rewarding. So, you know, so send it out. Read, learn. You know, if there's other people that are writing, if you have a little writer's group, you know, so that works for some people. It doesn't work for others. But like, but talking about writing, reading it, all those things. You know, I'm, I'm, just, try, I'm, just, I'm just thinking... Was there anything else I did? But it was just that, and it was just it was staying at it, and one little success builds on another little success, and and then you begin to see that that something is actually possible. When I was in um, in creative writing, and had a, a very good teacher who was teaching craft and different forms. It was uh, and one of the forms that she taught was a guzzle, a gazelle, Persian form of poetry. And I loved the, it's written in couplets, and I loved the associative nature, how it was like a falling of the brain. It was, it was, it tracked the movement of the mind. And I was, you know, I was completely caught by that. So I started to write guzzles. And that same teacher, uh, that same prof one day was, was going through, you know, I had to hand a manuscript, just a manuscript for the course in. And she found these guzzles at the end of the, you know, at the bottom. And she said, what are these? And I said, oh, I'm just playing with it. I really, I really love it. And she said, write these. And it became my first book. So you just don't know. Yeah, I love that. And, and I love to, and this was something, this was something I, I really uh, enjoyed learning about your journey from is that the form of something, whether it's prose, whether it's these guzzles, you know, something else that even before we know what we will populate the form with. 
that we can know we love the form of something or we're curious about it. And I think there's something there that, you know, of course we don't, I don't even know what that would fall under if this is like semiotics or, you know. There's a dance of form and content and trust that with your content, you will find the form, you know, that allows you that, you know, the, the guzzles were an attempt also to write my first attempt to write about death. And eventually what that needed was a more prosaic, open thinking line. And so, you know, so that happened, but you find that, and you can also, you can, you can flip that right, right in the opposite way. um, Brilliant. And as poets, you know, get a book of form and, and write sonnets and write villanelles and write odes to strictly to the adhere to the form, the traditional form, and you'll be really surprised what where where that will bring you. Rhyme will bring you places you wouldn't have gone. Meter will bring you places that you wouldn't necessarily go. So, play. Yeah, that's fun. Well, Eve, I I have enjoyed this as I mentioned a couple times. I've learned so much from your book and and from our conversation today, and I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful we've connected. So thank you for being a guest. Thank you so much. It's a, you're a lovely interviewer, a lovely man. So thank you. Oh, there you are. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I know there's so much more we could still talk about. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I feel like um, maybe we're about, we're about at the end of the, the conversation. Is there anything that we haven't, that we haven't touched on that feels like it might be of, of service to the listener? There's nothing. It's just been a lovely conversation, which is not a, not an interview so much. It's just a lovely conversation. So thank you yeah, for that. I agree. Well, my pleasure. Well, okay. So we'll go ahead and wrap there. So I'll just say again, thank you, Eve, and thank you to everybody listening. I hope that you've enjoyed this. I hope if you've listened this far, <laughs> clearly there's been something that's resonated with you. If you haven't already checked out Eve's work, I hope you do. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.